What does the Bible say about having a really negative attitude all the time about everything? It's the cross-culture Q&A question. Pastor Clay's answer right after this week's Crosswalk. Growing in God's Word and learning what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. Even those judgments that we've looked at already, even the sealed judgments and the trumpet judgments and the destruction, in some sense, is an opportunity for men and women to turn to God. In Galatians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul reminds us, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Judgment. Very few people want to talk about it. But the Bible says it's coming. His very nature, His righteousness, His holiness tells us that there must be a judgment, that He must deal with the sin of mankind. That's why He sent a Son, that whoever would believe in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. I'm Rick Freeman. Welcome to Crosswalk. Today we're in Revelation chapter 14, verses 14 through 20, as Pastor Clay continues his series entitled The Revelation. If you've been with us in this year-long study, you may remember that chapter 14 of the book of Revelation is a fast-forward look at how the Lord is going to bring the age of man to an end. Six angels appear in Revelation chapter 14, and all six of them are connected in some way to God's judgment. Verses 14 through 20 introduce us to the last three angels and the awesome description of God's final judgment on the world. We're glad you've joined us today as the Revelation series continues on Crosswalk. The book of Revelation has been discussed and debated for, you know, 2,000 years since John penned it. And, and, and there is a lot of symbolism. And, the, and so there are a lot of, well, this or, or possibly this. And as I've explained several times throughout the study, God does not feel obligated to answer every single question that you and I may have. He gives us what we need to keep us moving forward in this journey. He, there's things he wants us to know, but, but it's, it's a lot of... Uh, Study, But I, I enjoy it because I, I think it's important. I think people have a need to know that. Whether you're here and you're in a relationship with Jesus and you're wanting to learn more about this or you're here and you're just investigating this whole thing or, or whatever, I believe that there is a, a need. Earlier this week, uh, we, uh, my wife, Cindy, fixed dinner. And normally, you know, she loves to cook and it's like a big deal. I mean, she usually fixes a lot of stuff, too much stuff. But um, that, that particular night, whatever night it was this week, it was just a, you know, busy week. There's a lot going on. And, and she's like, is it okay if I just fix BLTs tonight? You know, I said, well, of course. You know, number one, I love BLTs. Number two, of course, that's fine. You know, you'll fix too much anyway. So um, she asked me, you know, how many do you want? And I said, I want two, I want two BLTs. I was hungry. I'd been to the gym. <laughs> I want two BLTs. Um, so she, you know, fixed the first one, you know, and it's, of course, it's perfect. Everything's on it and everything. And, um, and I ate it. We're sitting in the living room, and, and I ate it, and I, and I finished, and I got up to go get my other BLT, and I'm standing at the counter, and you just, yeah, it's one of those, probably not even funny to y'all, but just one of those you had to be there moments. And I'm standing at the counter, and uh, back behind me in the living room, uh, Cindy says, do you need any help, baby? Now, some of y'all, if you know me, you may know that I'm a, I'm a well-kept man. I'm almost as, as well-kept as James Allen. I'll tell you that. I'm a well-kept man. 
uh, my wife takes care of me. But, but she says, need any help in there, baby? And it just, it, just, it just struck me as funny. I didn't even tell her this. She doesn't even know this. She's not in here. It, 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 but it just struck me as funny because when she said that, I looked around. Here's the toast. She's already toasted toast for me. It's golden brown sitting right there in the toaster. The tomatoes are sliced nice and thin, just the way I like them. They're laying right there. Here's the lettuce all laid out. It's fresh and it's crisp and it's uh, just been washed. Here's the Miracle Whip and the Dukes. She knows I want Miracle Whip, but I guess just in case. You know, here's Miracle Whip and the Dukes sitting right there. There's my plate. There's the knife laying there. There's the bacon. It's already been fried up and it's laying right there. And, and when she said that, I thought, boy, if I need help at this point, I am in trouble. <laughs> I am. Because uh, I, you know. But that, she's just got a servant's heart and, and she just always does that. But, but people do have needs. And I believe those needs are found in here, even in this book of Revelation, which, and let's, let's face it, if you've been with us, we're going through a section that is it's hard, it's tough to read about uh, some of this. Believe it or not, this is now the fourth week that we've been in, in the 14th chapter of the book of Revelation. One month that we've been just in this one chapter. We started out, and the chapter starts out uh, with this picture of, of the Lamb symbolizing Jesus Christ, standing with the 144,000. And we explained all of that uh, three weeks ago when we were on that, three or four weeks ago when we were on that. Um, verses 1 through 5 show this picture of, of Jesus Christ standing on Mount Zion, triumphant at the end of the tribulation period, with the 144,000 converted Jews, those who will come in Revelation chapter 7 is where we covered that, where they, uh, and there they are standing at the end of the tribulation period, triumphant with the Savior um, over all that, is, that has occurred. So the chapter starts with a picture of triumph, victory. And, and I've told you this before, God never lets us get very far from the idea that he's got this thing under control and that he's going to bring victory. God, no matter how dark it may get at times in passages of scripture, God never lets us get very far from the idea that he is God, that he has a sovereign plan, and that we've read the back of the book and we win, as I like to say. So that's verses one through five. The rest of the chapter deal with this judgment time of God, these judgments. And uh, the six angels who show up, just one after the other in the 14th chapter, these six angels who are connected to this judgment of God. And one of the things that has come clear through this uh, study of the 14th chapter is that this time that we're looking at here is not the same as this age of grace that you and I live in today. Today, you and I still live in a time where God's grace is being extended toward men and women. You and I still live in a time where God's forgiveness is being offered and where his love is, is put forth to anyone who would come into a relationship with him or would, would desire to. That's why the Apostle Paul writes to the, the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 6 and he, and he says this. He says, for he says, at the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. You and I live in an age of grace where people can still respond to God's working in their life. Chapter 14 is a fast forward, and we talked about all of that. Go back and listen to the podcast. Is a fast forward vision to the end where God's patience has run out, 
where God's long suffering has come to an end and where God's wrath, and I know we don't like to, but where God's wrath is being poured out as we have seen described so vividly for the last couple of weeks and again this week. It is an age, it is a time of the judgment of God that is falling upon this world. And I said last week that, that I know that there are people that don't like to think of God in those terms. They don't like to think of a God whose patience will run out. They don't like to think of a God who, who, uh, who will pour out his wrath, as I said, whose judgment will fall. They don't like to think about a, a judgmental God. But quite honestly, ladies and gentlemen, you and I would do well to remember these words in, in Galatians chapter 6. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. And the one who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. It is a truth. It is a principle of Scripture. And God has told us from the very beginning that, 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 that there would be a day when He would bring an end to this whole thing, this world that we live in now, that there would be a conclusion to the age of man and that there would be a reckoning day. He, that's, that's clear throughout the pages of Scripture. So, let's look at it today. Revelation chapter 14 Verses 14 through 20. And by the way, I do encourage you, if, if, you, if you're here and, and this sparks some sort of interest in you and you'd like to know more, uh, every one of our sermons from the first of the year, well, from farther back than that, but I mean, this entire Revelation series is available on our podcast. Uh, you can go right to our website and, and, uh, and download and, or listen right there, or you can go to iTunes store and, and sign up and, and get those podcasts. And you might want to catch up um, on that. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. And then he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. Then another angel, the one who has power over fire, came out from the altar. And he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth. Because her grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great wine press of the wrath of God. And the wine press was trodden outside the city, and blood came out from the wine press up to the horses' bridles for a distance of 200 miles. Father, I thank you for your word. I confess to you that there's so much I am still trying to learn about it. And I thank you for the portions that, that speak so beautifully and powerfully of your grace and your mercy and your peace and your love and your joy and your contentment and your fulfillment and all the things that come with a relationship with you. But I'm also thankful for the hard verses, Lord God. The ones like we've 
read just now and that we're studying this morning because they remind me of the very nature of who you are, your holiness and your righteousness and my need to be in right standing with you. As I have prayed, I continue to pray, Lord God, that you would simply uh, teach us, give us understanding and wisdom to receive your word and make application wherever each of us in this room may be right now or each who may be listening to meet us right where we are, make the application we need for our life that we would know your word, which is truth without a mixture of error, that is able to divide soul and spirit, even joint and marrow, as the writer of Hebrews says. And so we ask you to do surgery on our hearts and lives today. Help us to understand this passage, Lord God. I am honored, as I always am, to be your messenger boy. In Jesus' name, amen. As we move into verse 14 of the 14th chapter, you notice that it says, Then I looked and behold. You can probably, especially if you've been keeping up with this study and reading through the book of Revelation, you can probably figure out that John seems to be transitioning to a new uh, facet of his of his vision. He seems to be moving in a new direction. He says, and I looked, and John uses that several times as he, as he transitions, and I looked and behold. So he's, he's kind of transitioning in his vision. And remember, a vision, it's, it's not a dream. God can work however God works, but it's not a dream like you and I have, like, you know, you wake up and you say, what, what, what? Mr. Rogers is what? <laughs> you know, it, it's not a dream like that. It's a vision is, is a revelation from God, a supernatural revelation to God that he gives to someone, in this case John, to reveal something that he wants us to know. And so in John's vision in verse 14, he says, I look and behold a white cloud. And John says he sees sitting on that cloud one, and he says it's one like a son of man. That's how John describes it. I look, I look up in the, in the clouds and in my vision I can see this cloud and I can see someone sitting on the cloud and that someone is like a son of man. Well, what's that about? Well, this phrase, son of man, actually goes all the way back to the book of Daniel. And, and again, if you've been in this study, you know, you've heard me say a number of times that the book of Daniel is intricately connected to the book of Revelation and that you really need both of those to get a fuller understanding. But in the book of uh, Daniel chapter 7, we find this. Daniel said this, and he had a similar vision like John had. Daniel says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, notice the similarity in the language, in the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man, there's that phrase, was coming, and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. That all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him, the Son of Man. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So John, in his vision, sees that same lang- uses that same language that Daniel used. And you'll notice that he says... That this one sitting on the clouds, like a son of man, has a crown on his head. The crown, obviously, indicates some sense of authority, some sense of rule. This, this person has this crown on their head. Now, I say all of that to, 
to just to say that it's pretty obvious that this one like a son of man is none other than Jesus Christ. That in John's vision, he sees Christ sitting on this cloud. Now, this, this phrase, son of man, is, is, is not new to Jesus. It's something that, that he used all the time. It was one of his favorite phrases for himself. It, he's, he's called by that phrase throughout the, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Verse 15, let me read this verse to you. It says, and another angel came out of the temple. This is now the fourth angel of the six. And another angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Now, if this Son of Man is Jesus Christ, it might seem kind of strange. And it, it did to me, uh, you know, each time I've read it before, it just seems strange to me that this angel comes out. If this is Christ sitting on the cloud, this, if this is God the Son sitting on the cloud, it, it might seem a little odd to you that this angel comes out and commands, basically what he's doing, it's, it's an imperative in the original language, commands Jesus to put in his sickle and reap because the harvest is ripe. Why would this angel be telling God the Son what to do. Well, you'll notice that it says that the angel is coming up out of the temple. The temple, the natural application would be the temple where God the Father resides. And so, in essence, all the, the angel is doing is relaying the message from the Father to the Son that it's time to begin the harvest. Not that the Son couldn't hear the Father. That's... Remember, he's symbolically painting this picture. This is what he sees in his vision. What he's trying to show us is that the Father is, is giving to the Son the judgment of the earth. That shouldn't surprise us. John chapter 5, we find this. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to who? The Son. So that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. Watch this. He who does not honor the Son... Does not honor the Father who sent him. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is, there it is, there's that phrase again, because he is the Son of Man. So there's that phrase again, it shows up. So, by the way, this does not mean that there is some type of hierarchical structure in heaven. And I know people think that, but this does not mean that somehow uh, God the Son is any less inequality than God the Father. No, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have, have existed eternally, co-equal, in complete and total unity. All this is simply saying is that in the plan of the Godhead, that the Father is, is giving the responsibility to the Son, and the Son is willingly placing himself under the authority of the Father to complete the plan of the Godhead. It's interesting that it says, put your sickle and reap, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come because the harvest of the earth, and here's the phrase, is ripe. Exoranthe in the Greek. It's a, there, there are several words for ripe, as I understand it, in the original language. Uh, interestingly enough, this word for ripe means this. It means was dried in this case. Uh, that's interesting, isn't it? Because when we think of ripe, we usually te- we tend to think of juicy, perfect, uh, ready. 
But in this case, the phrase that John uses actually means was dried, implying that this harvest is actually past due, that this harvest is actually moving toward the rotten side. Now listen to me. Not that God's timing isn't perfect. It is. It always is. But in this case, this harvest is not a harvest of people coming into the kingdom of God. This is not a harvest of, of, of people coming to relationship with God. In this case, this harvest is a harvest of judgment. And what God is saying is, and, and this has been, we've heard this throughout these weeks in the 14th chapter, we've heard this. What God is saying is, it's, it's done. It's finished. The time has come. My patience has run out. Judgment is falling upon the world. This world has had their chance. This world has had the message of Christ in the age that you and I live in. The church has been given the, the mandate to take the message of Jesus to the far reaches of the world. In the tribulation period, 144,000 witnesses will go out, Revelation chapter 11. The two witnesses will go out and perform miraculous signs, Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 14, you have the angel's witness, the angel's testimony. Listen, even, even those judgments that we've looked at already, even the sealed judgments and the trumpet judgments and the, and the destruction and the, and the death that will occur during that time, even that, in some sense, is an opportunity for men and women to turn to God. And what John sees is God saying, there's no more time. The time is up. I've told you this judgment would come. And now it is come. It is falling. It's, they're, they're dried. They're past ripe. Listen, we think, we think the world that we live in today is bad. And, and it is. But what we read about and what we'll see more of, that as, as the world moves towards the end of the tribulation period... The people that are still there, are, are, there's such wickedness, such evil, such unrighteousness that the world has literally become rotten. And God says, it's, it's time. It's time to deal with them. So, verse 16, we find out about this, this sickle. Then he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth. He's got this sickle in his hand, I there was a time in our culture when anybody would have known what a sickle was, but that's not the culture. We don't live in an agrarian society anymore, and not everybody would know that, what that necessarily would be. But a sickle was a farming utensil. It was a, it was a tool that was used to, uh, to, to bring in a harvest. It was a sharp blade, usually curved and on a long handle that, that uh, a farmer or, or someone working could use to, to, to wipe across the wheat or the, whatever it might be and to bring in the harvest. Jesus has a sickle in his hand. I, I think it's interesting that, that one, of the, one of the pictures of Christ that we have in Scripture, besides the fact that he's a sa- our Savior, one of the things he's sometimes referred to as is our shepherd. Maybe you've, you've heard that analogy before. He's referred to as our, our shepherd. He's the one who guides us and, and directs us. And, and I wish I had time today to stand here and tell you of all the times in my life that I can think back of how God was guiding me when I didn't even know, have a clue where I was going and the times in my life when God protected me when I didn't even realize what danger I might have, might have been in spiritually or, or, or even literally. One of the characteristics of a shepherd is that a shepherd always carried a shepherd's stick or crook or staff and they used it to guide and, and direct and, and protect the sheep there's no, there's no shepherd's crook in Jesus' hand now. There's a sickle. And as verse 16 makes it clear, 
he's not carrying it for ornamental purposes. He's not carrying it just to look the part. Verse 16 says, he put in his sickle to reap. And then verse 17 and 18, we find out this fifth and sixth angel show up. Another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. Now, that might seem a little strange. Okay, Jesus got a sickle, and then here comes the other guy right behind him, and, and he's got a sickle. All that's, don't let that, all that's really saying is that God, the Son, is the one ultimately who judges. He's the one that ultimately is bringing, overseeing judgment, bringing judgment, and how he does it is totally up to God. And in this case, obviously, clearly, angels are a part of that judgment process, that harvest process at the end of the tribulation period. What's interesting, though, is this other angel, then another angel, the one who has power over fire. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? You don't find that. I don't know if it shows up anywhere else about an angel. The one who has power over fire came out from the altar. Now, the text doesn't tell us which altar it was, so I can't be too dogmatic about this. But I believe the altar that's being referred to is the altar of incense that we first ran into in Revelation chapter 8, verse 3, I think it was, where it talks about the altar of incense where this fire was kept burning and the incense was burned on it. And that incense, if you remember, represented or symbolized the prayers of the saints, the prayers of the people of God, that symbolically this incense pictured our prayers being lifted up to God. Now, all of this may not make a hoot of difference to you, But it's interesting to me because what it seems to be saying is that somehow, while this is God's divine plan and while God's exercising his authority, somehow the prayers of God's people are involved in this final judgment that's coming on the earth. And if you think about it, throughout history, the people of God have prayed that God's righteous righteousness would would reign on the earth. God's people have prayed that his justice would be done. God's people have prayed that his kingdom would would, would come and that his kingdom would be established. And now, at the end of Revelation chapter 14, in the fast forward on the timeline, we're seeing exactly that come to pass. And somehow, the prayers that we lift up are involved in that. Let me just sidebar for just a second to say this. When we pray to God, we may not always see the answer that we think we need to see or what we think is, would be best. We might not always see God's hand move in a direction or a way in which we would desire to see it move. But if nothing else, I think this just reminds me, our prayers never go unnoticed by God. Our prayers never go, uh, become valueless in the, in the providence and the sovereignty of God. God has his plans, God has his purposes, and God has his timing for everything that he's going to do. Our responsibility is to, by faith, pray to God. And that's what it is, right? I, I can't see God up there. I haven't, I haven't touched Him today. He hasn't spoken audibly to me. But by faith, I believe that He is there. It's, and we understand, you've heard me say this before, it's not a faith that just woo, pulled out of the air. It's a faith substantiated and built on evidence. But by faith, I pray. The results I leave in God's hands. So, let's, let's get to the big one, right? Verse 19 and 20. In 19, the angel swung his sickle to the earth, gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth, and threw them into the great winepress, the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood came out from the winepress up to the horses' bridles for a distance of 200 miles. Clearly, the sickle being put, put in and, and this idea of reaping, the implication is that 
that judgment will be swift, that judgment will be complete, that judgment will be final. But, but what are we supposed to make of this blood, this, this river of blood, is how a lot of times people read it, this, this river of blood up to the horse's bridle for 200 miles? What are we supposed to make of that? One of my favorite commentators, uh, Warren Wearsby, believes and interprets this with the belief that John is using hyperbole here, what's known as hyperbole. In other words, John is exaggerating. Uh, he's intentionally exaggerating what's happening to, to drive home the point. That's what hyperbole is. It's, ex- it's, it's over-exaggerating to make the point that this is going to be a serious judgment and that, and that you know, this is coming and, and all that sort of thing. Wearsby may be right. He may absolutely be right, but I have kind of a, a different take on it. Not, not me alone, others. And, and that's simply this. Because he makes this analogy about the wine press, which I think is interesting. As I understand it, in those days, a wine press, when, when the harvesters would, would reap the, the harvest of the grapes, when they bring the grapes in to make the wine, um, the wine press was usually made of stone. It was, it was basically just a, a bowl-shaped rock. It was carved out of a rock or, or a, out of a rock cliff or a boulder that they would, that they would chisel out and make a, a bowl where they could keep the, the juice when they began to press these grapes. And of course, as you can imagine, well, we're not talking about something this big. We're talking about a good-sized thing that they would hewn out. And the, the harvesters would place the grapes into the wine press and they would or whoever was designated to, hopefully the, the clean feet people, would be given the assignment of getting in and stomping on the grapes to, to stomp them out, to stomp out the juice. And then they would filter and skim out the impurities and, and all that kind of stuff. But as you can imagine, if you got a bunch of you know, people in there stomping around, stomping these grapes, stomping these grapes, stomping these grapes, as you can imagine, the, the grape juice would splatter out all over the place to whatever distance it would reach, that it would splatter out everywhere. So I believe what John is saying is that in the same way as, 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 as the harvesters stomp out the grapes and, and the grape is splattered everywhere, in the same way, John is pointing towards this climactic end battle at the very end of the tribulation period where the, the, the warfare will be so intense that the blood will be flying everywhere. For a distance of 200 miles. That's like, what? I don't know. 200 miles? It's interesting. The nation of Israel is a little less than 200 miles. I think about 180 miles uh, long. Although there's nowhere in Scripture that implies that the final battle, the last battle that the world will ever experience, that man will ever be involved in, that battle that's known as the Battle of Armageddon. There's no in Scripture that implies that that battle will be restricted only to the borders of the nation of Israel. And in fact, you can imagine if millions of people, as, as the text implies, and by the way, we'll see that. We'll get into this in greater detail in chapter 16, this battle of Armageddon. If millions of people are involved in this, it's, it's not very hard to imagine a battle line that extends for miles and miles and miles and miles. And in fact, the battle rages for apparently a couple of hundred miles. Millions and millions of people involved. The epicenter of that battle 
will be what's referred to as the Valley of Megiddo, where we get the, the term Battle of Armageddon, the Valley of Megiddo, which is in northern Israel. That will be the epicenter. But when millions and millions of people are involved in this climactic battle at the very end of time before Christ returns, you can see how it would stretch out and carry on for miles. And listen to me, here's the point. It will be swift when Christ comes back. It will be swift. It will be final. Judgment will come. And millions of people, millions of people will be swept into eternity. Millions of people who have rejected Christ and rebelled against Christ will be swept into eternity as the harvest is reaped and the end comes. As God cleans up His creation in some sense in preparation for the establishment of His earthly kingdom, that millennial reign. We'll get to all of that in the chapters to come. But I've said this now for the three weeks in a row. Here's why this matters. Here's why you got to sit here and listen to all this blood and death and judgment and all this kind of stuff. It's the third week in a row that I've said this to quote Andy Stanley. We believe that everybody is going to live forever somewhere. I, I do. I believe that. I just, I just know it's true. I can't tell you necessarily. I mean, yeah, I know what God's Word says, but I just know it's true. We believe that everybody's going to live forever somewhere. Can I remind you of this? Please don't somehow leave here with the impression or the idea that this is something that God in some way enjoys. That this is something in some way that God wants to do. It's like, all right, I'm going to get them. I've just been waiting for this moment where I could just come down, bring the hammer. Please don't get that impression of God because it's not true. His very nature, His righteousness, His holiness tells us that there must be a judgment, that He must deal with the sin of mankind. That's why He sent a son. That whoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That our sins could be placed on him if we would by faith turn to him. But for those who don't, we believe everybody's going to live forever somewhere. But please don't think this is something that brings God any kind of pleasure. Through the prophet Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 33, God says this, As surely as I live, says the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of wicked people. This is not what I wanted for their life. I only want them to turn from their wicked ways so they can live. Turn, turn from your wickedness, O people of Israel. In the context of Ezekiel, that they had rebelled, they had turned away from God. The implication would be for anybody in this room as well. Turn, turn away from the life chosen your way. Why should you die? That's God himself speaking because he loves us. We are still living in an age of grace where we can still respond and where those people that you know, those family members, those loved ones, those coworkers, those neighbors can still respond and come to a God who loves them so much that he sent his son the first time to die for our sins so that we would not have to face his judgment the next time he comes. As we close out chapter 14, one thing has been made abundantly clear. God's judgment is coming on this world. Many people today think God would never pour out His wrath and destroy men. But God's Word tells us something very different. God's holiness tells us that He will deal with the wickedness and unrighteousness of the world. The response the world should have is to repent and turn to the God of creation while there is still time. 
The end of the world will be a bloody, violent time. But as we'll see in our study in the coming weeks, God will usher in His earthly kingdom, and there will be a world where His righteousness will rule, and where peace and prosperity cover the earth. We're glad you joined us for this week's message on Crosswalk. Each week, Pastor Clay opens the Bible and brings out its exciting and practical truths to apply to our lives. Cross Culture Church is a new church in North Raleigh, but instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice realness. We meet Sundays at 1030 at Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. And we welcome anyone looking for a place to learn about God's plan for their life. At Cross Culture Church, we experience the liberating, satisfying, life-changing power of the cross. And it's our desire to bring that power to a culture in need of freedom, hope, and joy. We hope you'll come join us on a Sunday morning. We'll save a seat for you. Cross Culture Church, a new church for people like you. Learn more about us, who we are, what we're about, what we do, and what we believe. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org. Cross Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross. Now this week's Cross Culture Q&A. Interesting uh, Q&A question this morning. Each week at Cross Culture, we take one question that someone turns in that, that uh, we try and deal with from uh, the perspective of Scripture. The Q&A question for today looks like this. What does the Bible say about, and, and by the way, I, I like to from time to time write it out exactly the way the person puts it. Sometimes I can't, got to kind of put it all together. But what does the Bible say about having a really negative attitude all the time about everything? <laughs> I always wonder, you know, did somebody, did some husband write that about his wife? Or did some wife write that about her husband or, or some brother? about? What does the Bible say about having a really negative attitude all the time about everything? Well, why don't we just let Scripture really speak uh, for itself today? Let's, and there's so many verses we could begin. But let's, let's begin with uh, Galatians chapter 5. Uh, some of you know this verse, of course. Uh, but the fruit of the, or these verses. But the fruit of the Spirit is... Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Galatia, reminds them that if the Spirit of God dwells within you, then what should begin to be produced is this fruit. And those of you that know me know this is, a, this is one of my pet peeves, is pointing out that it's not fruits of the Spirit, it's fruit of the Spirit. It is singular that all of this should be produced in my life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If, the, if, if that is being manifested in my life, I, I'm here to tell you, if that... If love and joy and peace and all those things are being manifested in my life, I can't have a negative attitude. At least I don't believe I can. And so Paul says, remember, that's what your life ought to be producing if the Spirit of God dwells within you. Here, here's another one good to look at. Philippians chapter 4 says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. And I'll say it again, rejoice. In other words, just the very idea that, that God is my God and that salvation is available to, to me, that thought should bring joy into my life. It's hard to have a negative attitude, I think, if, if my life is just filled with joy. Let your gentleness be evident to all. 
The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Watch this. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So there's this peace that comes into my life as I'm, if, as I'm laying it all up to God. Which, again, I think if, if, if God's peace is in me, it's kind of hard to have a, a negative attitude. And then he says, Paul tells, he says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, read that last line with me, please, think about such things. That if my mind, if I focus my mind on things that are true and noble and admirable and these positive thoughts having to do with God and his plan for my life, that again, those negative attitudes that our flesh tends to run towards, right? All of us have tendencies at times to be, to be negative. Even this morning I was thinking, oh Lord, you know, it's going to be a ghost town at Cross Culture. Everybody, so many people told me they're going to be gone. But then I got to remember, Lord says, if two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in their midst. And this is about him anyway, isn't it? So our tendency is to run towards that negativeness. Um, but Paul says, no, think about this. Um, and then in Ephesians, I think, chapter 4, get rid of all bitterness, rage. This is a proactive thing. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Get those out of your life. And I'll bet you'll find this. You get rid of bitterness and anger and rage. There's not a lot of room left for for just being negative. It's just, there's just not a lot of room for that. Because I've replaced it with something far, far better for my life. So, uh, some general prescriptions. You know, this, fill your mind with this. Get rid of some of these things. And let the, the Spirit of God that dwells within you, if you know Christ as your Savior, produce this love, joy, peace, and patience. So that life in general is just better, quite honestly. Anybody ever been around it like a really negative person? Or, or fought that tendency yourself? It's not a lot of fun to to be around so life itself is just better but let me give you one more reason that that you ought to get rid of negativity if if that tends to be you know sort of your besetting thing that kind of jumps on you Uh, Matthew chapter 5 Jesus said this he says let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your father which is in heaven let your light so shine Uh, can I be honest with you just confession time I there have been some people that I have known through the years in, in churches where I've served that, I'm just being honest with you, I won't name names, but there have been people that I've known that I have thought, I sure hope they don't tell anybody they're Christian. <laughs> because because their, their life, their, their, their attitude toward life was so negative all the time. It's like, who wants that? If we're trying to let our light shine before men, what we're trying to say is, hey, we're not any better than you. We just think we've got something better than you. His name is Jesus, and he make a difference in your life. But if my life is full of negativity and, and bitterness and anger and all that stuff, that's not a very good billboard for Jesus. So if nothing else, just for the purposes of glorifying God. There's Q&A for today. Thank you.